This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Tuesday, December 3rd, 2019. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So we got Black Friday. That's followed by Cyber Monday and Giving Tuesday. Or for presidential candidate Kamala Harris, Giving Up Tuesday. Harris is out. And he wants quite promising candidate who was second in a lot of polls in June and July. She's ended her campaign. We'll talk more about that in our interview with Slate's Julia Craven, but I want to cover one aspect right here. Whenever a candidate bows out, that candidate's supporters, and often the candidate himself or herself, will blame the media. Of course, the winning candidate also usually blames the media. I remember interviewing Dennis Kucinich. This is not an example of a winning candidate, by the way. This was the 2004 presidential election. He was not polling so well. And he told me that the media was partly to blame because they didn't give him enough coverage. Well, sir, I said to him, is it that they're not giving you enough coverage or that they are accurately reporting that you plan to swap out the Department of Defense for the Department of Peace? I mean... Was it that the media didn't inform voters of this plan or that they did, which doomed you? Anyway, Kamala Harris supporters are also blaming the media coverage and media-driven questions of electability as unfair and damaging to their favorite candidate's campaign. Here was one Harris supporter quoted in the New York Times The Daily podcast a couple weeks ago. She's been erased by the media. She's been misrepresented by the media. The data, though, tells a different story. In early 2019, Axios went through data at CrowdTangle and Google Trends and found that Kamala Harris was searched twice as often on Google as her next closest contenders, Senator Sanders and Warren. Harris had some 8.3 million interactions on Instagram and 14.4 million on Twitter, which was twice as many as Sanders on both those platforms, four times as many as Warren. That's one form of media, media you create. She was good at it. She got a lot of it. And the news media followed in kind. Here, just to take one headline, Vice, after the first debate headline, how Kamala Harris blew up the Democratic, quote, media primary. California Senator Kamala Harris created a viral moment at former Vice President Joe Biden's expense Thursday, hitting him on his 1970s record on busing and linking it to her personal story of being bused to integrated schools as a girl in Berkeley. With that, Harris won the most precious commodity for a candidate one political scientist says is most directly linked to poll results, media attention. But then with the attention came the scrutiny. And she offered shifting answers on issues from her health care plan, which she changed, to her current stance on busing, which seemed to differ from Biden's, judging by her tone in that debate. But it was, in fact, not different, not currently. She made a statement that she'd think about extending the vote to prisoners. Oh, no, she wouldn't. She raised her hand about giving up private insurance. That was explained as a misheard question. She delivered a fair but fierce jab at Elizabeth Warren during the Iowa Liberty and Justice celebration, then walked that back the next day. If any candidate who doesn't start off as a very well-known has that many walkbacks 
Come voting time, they will be walking back to their old job. It's not the fact of the walk back and the clarification and the take two and the do over and the not what I meant. It's a question of political skill, not to say or endorse the position that you come to regret in the first place. How do you not sense that? How do you not know who you are enough to say, yeah, actually, I'm not for giving prisoners the vote and here's why. It's not that important an issue. It just shows a lack of understanding of the self. And all the missteps were in the same direction, right? Which is to initially say the thing that seems boldest and is met with whoops of applause from the progressive wing of the party, but then to have second thoughts about it. Anyway, that's my analysis. Some voters didn't like Harris because she was once a prosecutor. Some didn't like her because she tried too hard to be memeable. And some don't like anyone who's not a socialist. She is clearly a compelling communicator. She does well in a prosecutorial setting, like, say, a judiciary committee hearing. But the skills needed to thrive in that job are different from the skills she needs for the job of the presidency, a job she announced today that she will no longer be seeking. On the show today, more Harris, well, Harris Island in Scotland, where a giant whale, or actually a slightly small whale, if you go by whale size, but a whale was found, sadly, dead, felled in part by 100 kilograms of garbage. But before the necropsy of a marine mammal and autopsy of a floundering campaign, Slate's Julia Craven stops by for an analysis of the end of the Harris campaign. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Kamala Harris, quite shockingly to me at least, announced that she was leaving the presidential race after some early success in a debate. She couldn't sustain the momentum and recent reports of infighting within her campaign were not strongly rebutted by the candidate or staffers, which I thought was a sign that perhaps the campaign might not be that long for this race. But now Kamala Harris, certainly the highest profile candidate to bow out of the 2020 race for president, is out. Joining us now to discuss this is Julia Craven, who covers race, politics, and health disparities for Slate.com. Hello, Julia. Welcome to The Gist. Hi, thanks for having me. Were you surprised? Uh, Yeah, actually, I was. Um, It's like you said, she is the most high profile candidate to drop thus far. And it was a little shocking that she didn't stick around until Super Tuesday, at least. Yes, because Super Tuesday includes California. Exactly. Yeah, and so people might not know that the calendar this year is uh, front-loaded, as they say. And while on this show I talked about this probably made South Carolina not as important as some people said, with Texas and California and other large states voting, you would think that a candidate who thought she or he had any reasonable chance would try to stay in. So I guess this leads me to ask you, should we conclude that Harris just looked at the data and said, I had... I have no path to victory. She had to. I mean, I'm still trying to wrap my mind around it because, again, I just could not see her dropping out before Super Tuesday. It is really, really a baffling decision for me. Um, 
I read the New York Times story and the, the story about her campaign kind of disintegrating. Yeah. Yes. And that was also my understanding from what I had been hearing was that there were some there was some upheaval within the campaign. But even still, I thought that it might level out long enough for her to see how she did on Super Tuesday. Yeah. So I do think that this is a bit shocking. But I mean, if you don't have the money, and you're not a billionaire. Eh, it's kind of hard to stick around. Well, only one or two of the candidates who have actually qualified for the debate are billionaires. The other path is to get enough attention and donations. And she did that in the quarter in the quarter before this one. She did quite well with fundraising. So that to me shows that she had the ability to do it. There was just something going on, something dysfunctional in the last few months of the campaign that donors, uh, voters and media were discerning. In your opinion, what was that? What wasn't going right for her? I think her being hard to define politically is really what did it. I also think that not investing in South Carolina also may have tanked campaign morale a little bit. I do find it a bit baffling that there was a lack of investment in black voters in South Carolina. But yeah, it's just it's just been very bizarre for me. So I have been following her campaign since I was at HuffPost. Um, I'm sure that a lot of people who listen to this don't know, but I've only been at Slate about, um, I guess, three months now. Mm-hmm. Um, so everyone should congratulate me for being here for three months. <laughs> hey, you stuck with it, <laughs> unlike some people. <laughs> so I haven't been here for that long, but I was at HuffPost. And when I was there, I was following her campaign pretty closely um, for a larger thing that ended up not working out. But just from paying attention to it, one thing that I could never really wrap my mind around was what was her message? What was she standing on? And what was it that she was trying to say to voters? And I think that that coupled with her history as a prosecutor and never really figuring out how to market that history or herself to voters, especially in a field with Warren, with Bernie, with people who have these very, very solid platforms and these solid messages, right? Like she's up here with candidates who know what they're pitching to people Mm -hmm. and she just never really found her footing. Right. Uh, That is true. Bernie's message couldn't be clearer. It helps if you're an ideologue. Uh, (laughs) Biden, uh, you know, an appeal to the past, steady hand on the on the uh, rudder, that sort of thing. Elizabeth Warren has a plan. And Buttigieg, maybe a little more amorphous than the other ones, but certainly, you know, moderate sensibility kind of technocrat. Even Amy Klobuchar certainly has a very, you could define what her campaign is about, right? You know, Midwestern sensibility. And you're right. Now, I would say with Harris, it's not so much that she didn't have one, it's that she had so many different ones. Even that New York Times story talked about her, quote, cycling through slogans. Speaking truth spring gave way to 3 a.m. summer. This is a reference to waking up at 3 a.m., the the person who's worried about things and she'll allay their worries. And now she's talking about a Trump-focused justice winter. As a consumer of media news and an observer, that struck me as true. She did keep changing her message. The question is why. Right. I also think as an observer, that's very confusing. It just... It took too long to get to the justice part. And she launched her campaign for the people. I'm a prosecutor. This is what I do. Her strongest viral moments up until she launched her campaign were the moments of her going after Trump officials. They were the moments where she was questioning people 
when she was in the Senate, her strongest moments have been of her being a prosecutor, of her Mm -hmm. stepping into that role. So why that wasn't seized upon early, I I don't know. I I mean, I hate to keep saying I don't know and that I'm confused, (laughs) but that's really all I can keep coming back to is that I don't know what happened. And I've seen some takes on Twitter about how this is a situation where the analyst just got it wrong. I don't know if I can just accept that. I I don't think it was so much the analyst getting it wrong as it was just there was just missed opportunity after missed opportunity here to really, really nail down who she was and not only who she was, but to introduce herself to voters, to get that name recognition, to invest in South Carolina and not just and I'm not saying that her campaign did this because I don't know. Right. Mm hmm. But to not bypass South Carolina voters and give off the vibe that you don't need to invest in this community, you're just going to get their vote. Oh, you think that? See, hmm, I don't know if uh, you could certainly draw that conclusion. But I think as I looked at the calendar, maybe she was calculating, this is not a bad calculation, that if it came to South Carolina and she had done poorly in the three states, we forget Nevada, the three states that vote beforehand, South Carolina wouldn't be enough to save her with Super Tuesday right around the corner. I think that's kind of a rational decision and rational policy. The the point was that she was doing so poorly in these early states and she had made a show of saying, I'm going strong in Iowa. And then the polling was saying, yes, but Iowa wasn't going strongly for you. I mean, yeah, I can see that. I also think that just from an optic standpoint and then as well as Biden is doing in South Carolina. Yeah. I think you still got to throw muscle around in South Carolina. Yeah, well, you probably have to throw muscle around against Biden like she did in rhetorically in that first debate and then just didn't have a lot to back it up. Remember, she was at, in some polls, in a Quinnipiac poll, she was at 20% in late June. She was neck and neck with Biden. She was Biden was at 22% in that poll and she was at 20%. Now, that's one poll. But in a series of polls, she was essentially where Buttigieg is now. She was in that tier right under Biden. But I think that she didn't have... She She's great at the moment. She's great at the quip. But I don't think that she had, I don't know if I want to call it substance, but she didn't express to voters, all right, I zinged him on his policy in the 70s. And from that, I will lead you now to where my positions are today that will help you that are superior to him. It was that second part that she didn't do. We're getting back into that. She's hard to define. She flip flops. It doesn't land. It's the same thing. It's the theme that we've seen. And this is actually a theme that has come up throughout her career. Um, There was a again, I've been following this for a while. There was a 2003 article in the San Francisco Examiner where it was talking about this same thing. The title of it was Kamala Harris's struggle for (laughs) self-definition. And this was when she was running to be D.A. of San Francisco. I think one part of her being hard to define is that you can't really put her into a box, Mm -hmm. right? And so part of the reason why you can't put her into a box is because a lot of the boxes just don't apply to her. She's not white. She's not a dude. She went to an HBCU. She's a career prosecutor. You know, she doesn't really tick off these standard political boxes that we have, right? But at the same time, that should be a good thing. And that's something that people should seize upon. And I'm not sure why 
that really wasn't dug into and why it never really landed. So right now, in people offering explanations of what undid the uh, Harris campaign, people will point to the fact that, well, maybe America just isn't ready for a black woman to be president or to be the Democratic nomination. And maybe it's not even that. Maybe it's just that Democratic voters perceive other voters as not being ready. And therefore, her status, her ethnicity, ultimately, her ethnicity and her gender, her intersectionality, ultimately harmed her candidacy. However, I think there's good evidence, especially early on, that her ethnicity and um, gender helped her candidacy, or at least was exciting to people. And I'd like to know what you think about that. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I don't think that her race or her gender, her intersectionality, I don't think that that hurt her at all. I think that ultimately what voters are looking for is policy. And I think that if you put forth policies and you present it to people in a way that's interesting, in a way that excites them, in a way that makes them feel as though you're going to reduce the harm being inflicted upon their communities, that is what is going to get them over to your side. So, yeah, I don't buy that her blackness, her womanhood, I'm not buying that that hurt her in any way either. Do you think there is a legacy or a lesson of the Harris candidacy for the rest of the field? Yes, get an issue and land on it. And even if you do cycle through issues, just make sure that they stick. Because I think one other thing that must be said about her being hard to define here isn't necessarily that other candidates don't cycle through issues as the campaign moves forward. It's that when they do cycle through them, they tend to stick, right? Like if a candidate says, we're going to talk about reparations today and we're going to talk about student loan debt tomorrow and then we're going to talk about Trump. Typically, they stay on these things for a little while and when they do, you know, move through them, they kind of stay with you, you know, and there's Mm -hmm. always at least one big signature issue. So a lot of different things are moving and shaking during the campaign. People are talking about many different things. Bernie, Warren, Gabbard, like all of these people are talking about different things. But the things that they're talking about are sticking with people and people are interested in what they're saying. So I think that ultimately your policies and how you present them have to be a little bit more compelling to people. And you can't constantly cycle through them. And you do need at least one signature that's going to broadly appeal to people. Julia Craven covers race, politics, and health disparities for Slate. Hey, Julia, maybe you want to stick, maybe you want to pick one of those and just stick with it. I mean, what's with all the different areas of expertise? I have range. <laughs> I have so much range. Craven, Craven 2020, she has range. Thank you, I'm Julia. basically Rihanna. <laughs> <laughs> what I've been saying. <laughs> Thank you for your umbrella coverage. <laughs> Thank you. And now the spiel. A dead whale washed up on a Scottish beach the other day further degrading the already fragile standing of Scotland on Travel and Leisure's Great Beaches of the World rankings. The whale was identified as an adolescent male sperm whale, according to the group who found the whale, SMOS, the Scottish Marine Animal Strandings Scheme. Oh, mercy. What sort of plan is that? To strand poor marine animals. Oh, wait, hold on. I'm being informed. 
SMAS is actually against the stranding of animals. Really? Even when a dolphin or a beluga is dropped off wrapped in a blanket at a local firehouse? Anyway, you really had me, I don't know, eyebrow raised with your name, Scottish Marine Animal Strandings. And then if you'd have gone with organization or group, I get it. But the Scottish Marine Animal Stranding scheme, it does seem suspicious. But according to SMAS, quote, in this whale's stomach was approximately 100 kilograms of marine debris. All this material was in a huge ball in the stomach, and some of it looked like it had been in there for some time. The animal wasn't in particularly poor condition. Well, I guess except for being dead. And whilst... That, that's how I know it's Scottish. And whilst it certainly is plausible that this amount of debris was a factor in its live stranding, we actually couldn't find evidence that this had impacted or obstructed the intestines. Honestly, earnestly, credit to Smoss for not overemphasizing the role that the debris might have played. You can't prove that it felled the great Leviathan or the teen Leviathan. But I got to think that 220 pounds of garbage in your belly, it just can't be a good thing. It's not like the whale equivalent of a multivitamin or a copper bracelet. I mean, if 220 pounds of garbage did no harm, then Sebastian Gorka would still be employed by the Trump administration. Am I right? No, I'm not. He weighs more than 220. That guy's at least 250 soaking wet, which, by the way, is the usual way whales are weighed. But I was actually keen to investigate what comprised the garbage. What was it made of? And according to SMOS, as reported by the Sunday Herald YouTube site, which is an odd institution since the Sunday Herald actual newspaper went out of business a little over a year ago. But the YouTube site quoted Smoss reporting the constituent parts of the garbage thusly. Researchers who examined the animal found its stomach contained almost 100 kilograms of land and sea waste, including sections of net, rope, plastic cups, bags, gloves, packing straps and tubing. Now, did you hear what I heard or rather... What I didn't hear? Straws. No straws. I went online and closely examined the pictures. No straws. Oh, so much attention to how all the straws are killing all the poor sea creatures, but it is just not true. They actually found killer garbage, potentially killer garbage, 220 pounds of it, and not a straw in sight. I mean, maybe there was a straw in there somewhere, but if so, it was literally undiscernible within the gloves and the rope and the netting. I saw metal. I saw part of a machine. I think I saw Pinocchio. The real story is this that straws constitute only 0.03% of ocean waste. I've said it before. Let me say it again. I like stats. There are 19,000 murders in America. If 99.97% of all murders were eradicated, there would be six murders in America. It would be the most peaceful society the world has ever known. 0.03% of 19,000 is six. What a land it would be if there were only six murders in the United States. That's the number of straws in the ocean waste. Wayne Messam will get a higher percent of the presidential vote than 0.03%. Jeff Bezos is worth $112 billion. If you took 0.03% of that, he'd be worth $33 million, which might sound impressive until you consider that is less than Joe Flacco's signing bonus in 2016. If you don't know who Joe Flacco is, he's kind of a straw of a quarterback, meaning he upsets people, but he's actually quite harmless. And plastic straws are great. 
And paper straws are terrible. If paper straws weren't terrible, I wouldn't be going on about this. I really wouldn't bother you. I know I've done this before. It's just so painful to me to be so right, but treated as so very wrong. And let me tell you now why it hits home, literally. As you know, I moved homes. Thanks for putting up with a very self-indulgent spiel yesterday detailing the facts of my move. That spiel, by the way, lasted 17 minutes. 0.03% of that is quicker than you can actually hear. But I wanted to say this. There's a wonderful coffee shop down the street. It's called Bishop Wells. I support those guys. They're the best. I even posted a great Google review about it. And I don't usually do Google reviews. I will read the review in full. What a great place. The sandwiches are the ne plus ultra of the sandwich arts. The coffee is great. The games are copious. They have chess and checkers and the kids love it. I wish They'd stock straws other than those hideous paper ones, but they are acting out of conviction. I love this place. Well, guess what I found out? Bishop Wells is closing. Closing. So plastic straws didn't kill the whale, but paper straws doomed my favorite coffee shop. Like straws, plastic straws more than paper straws. It really sucks. That's it for today's show. Daniel Schrader produces the gist, and he would do anything to get me off the straw crusade. Hey, Mike, you want to talk about, I don't know, you don't win states, you win delegates? Hey, Mike, what about the phrase appealing to his base? Tautology, want to sing that, Mike? Anything, please? Christina DeJosa, gist producer, also does not care for my straw talk, but reclaiming the swizzle stick, she is here for that. The gist. Even if Kamala Harris went, her work goes on, her cause endures, Her hope still lives, her dream shall never die, and her message is truer today than it's ever been. To quote, dude gotta go. Oomperu dapperu duperu, and thanks for listening.